A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Friday. And what a week it's been on the programme. Mario Draghi of Italy announcing his government farewell. The ECB hikes rates, inflation it must repel. Tesla surges after profits and revenues excel. And on that Bitcoin sale, well, it's best not to dwell. And what about a Musk action figure courtesy of Mattel? Well, find out when the Mattel CEO joins the show to discuss earnings in around 15 minutes' time. Earnings in the meantime squarely in the spotlight on Wall Street today with tech set to fall after an investor slap for Snap, the parent company of Snapchat reporting decelerating sales growth amid slowing ad sales and providing little guidance on the outlook, which was a concern. The popular content app joining the growing list of firms like Microsoft, Google and Goldman Sachs that are also slowing hiring. Snap shares taking a pounding pre-market, currently down more than 30%. Other tech firms that rely on ad dollars for growth like Meta and Alphabet pulling back in sympathy to Twitter out with a disappointing set of numbers as well. A full debrief on all of that coming right up. In the meantime, Europe in the green, a positive end to a pretty challenging week where the ECB began the fight to tame prices just as the Italian government collapsed and market-friendly Mario Draghi moves on. And new numbers today showing Eurozone business activity contracting this month with weakness in both the manufacturing and the services sectors as the war in Ukraine continues to weigh. And that's where we begin today. Within the hour, Ukraine is expected to sign a deal to reopen three key ports and resume grain exports. The agreement, which was mediated by Turkey and the United Nations, is due to be signed in Istanbul. Jamana Karachi is in the capital forest. Jamana, this would be a huge achievement for food security around the world. But as always, it's complicated in terms of the detail. Help us understand how this should work, at least in theory, in terms of this agreement signing. Well, look, Julia, I think we're going to find out a bit more in about 30 minutes or so once this agreement is signed and once they announce the details of this agreement. We've been hearing uh, bits and pieces coming from uh, Ukrainian officials and also Turkish officials. Now, what we understand is there are going to be two agreements that are going to be signed. Ukrainian officials making clear they're not going to be signing any agreements with the Russians. What is going to happen is you're going to have these mirror agreements, one that is going to be signed between Ukraine, uh, Turkey, and the United Nations and the other one with Russia and these two um, other parties. Now, what we understand from uh, Ukrainian officials and Turkish officials, and we're trying to put this together until the announcement is made, is what they're going to do is create this uh, safe corridor for the export of uh, Ukrainian grain out of Ukrainian ports. We've also heard that this will also uh, facilitate the export of Russian uh, food products as well as fertilizer. This is going to include three Ukrainian ports, including Odessa, of course. And uh, the the question is, uh, Julia, how is this going to be implemented? Who is going to be enforcing this? And this is these are all the details we are uh, waiting to uh, to hear. But what we understand is they're going to designate safe channels for this corridor and uh, that there's going to be a uh, in, in, uh, joint inspections that will be taking place. Again, waiting for more details on that, how that's going to work. And there's going to be a coordination center that is going to be here in Istanbul with representatives of the United Nations, uh, Ukraine, Russia, 
and uh, Turkey, of course. Now, Ukrainian officials, uh, Julia, were really quick to point out that they're not going to be allowing any Russian vessels or any Russian escorts anywhere near their ports, uh, saying that any attempts by Russia, any sort of provocations, as they called it, there will be an immediate military response, uh, according to senior Ukrainian officials, really pointing out there that kind of lack of trust, as you would expect, uh, of Russian intentions here. Uh, So we're going to have to wait and see. The biggest issue, of course, is going to be implementation, enforcement, and making sure that Russia commits to what it signs today. And this is, of course, something that Ukrainian officials are clearly worried about, uh, Julia. So we'll be finding out more in about 13 minutes or so. But we really cannot overstate the significance of this moment, of this agreement that will pave the way for the creation of this uh, safe corridor for Ukrainian grain exports. It will be good news for millions of people uh, around the world and uh, hopefully averting um, a catastrophic situation that UN and other officials have been warning about when it comes to the world food crisis. Yeah, the World Food Programme chief said to us this is pushing millions of people towards famine. It's a, a, a declaration of war in terms of the Russian war in Ukraine on food security around the world. Um, and you raise some great points. So you can see from the Ukrainian side, they don't want to do anything that makes strategic ports like Odessa increasingly vulnerable to Russia. And on the Russian side, they've said, look, they don't want this to be a, a route upon which weaponry is brought into Ukraine. Um, we can separate that aside. I think part of the challenge, and you've pointed to it, Germana, is um, the physical activity of exporting this, uh, the security required for privately owned freighters, for the insurance for those freighters and the sea crews that are involved here. Everybody wants to ensure that... uh, both sides will adhere to this, that mines will be respected and avoided, that the complications even beyond this agreement are vast, I think. Very much so. And this is, I think, where you're going to have guarantors for these agreements, where you're going to have other parties uh, that will be involved in this, whether it is Turkey, the United Nations, others perhaps that will help facilitate this and will help ensure the implementation of this sort of agreement. As you mentioned there, obviously, the Russians want to guarantee that their own uh, exports will be facilitated. The Ukrainians want to make sure that they are not opening themselves up to any sort of a situation where Russia is going to exploit uh, uh, Ukraine opening up its ports and then their their southern coastal uh, cities, including Odessa, would come under attack. This has really been a concern. So we'll have to wait and see. The devil is in the detail, as it always is in cases like this. Um, I think, you know, uh, Julia, being here in Turkey, I would tell you that this is being viewed as a huge diplomatic victory for President Erdogan and for the Turkish government, who have been under a lot of pressure for really trying to maintain what they've described as this neutral position that they have argued throughout, that they are not going to join Western sanctions against Russia because they wanted to keep. Uh, the channels open between both sides, because this is a country that has such good relations, economic and defense relations between both uh, with both uh, Russia and Ukraine. And they've insisted that they need to
to keep the channels open with Russia to try and facilitate any sort of agreements in the future. They've been hoping to reach some sort of a ceasefire agreement. They were hoping to try and bring Presidents uh, Putin and Zelensky together for some sort of a summit here in Turkey over the past few months, and that did not work out. But if they are able to uh, help facilitate this right now, this is going to be a huge victory. And we certainly will be hearing President Erdogan saying that in the coming hour or so. Momentous. We'll look out for it. Jumana, great to have you with us. Thank you. To Wall Street now and a rough start to the trading day on tap for some of the most popular consumer brands in tech. Investors snapping to attention after alarmingly weak results from Snap. Twitter investors, meanwhile, in a tizzy too after a big revenue miss. Twitter's response? Blame it on Musk. Rahel Solomon joins us now. Kind of. I'll couch that slightly, um, Rahel. But it was a pivotal moment for the company. They obviously can't do an earnings call because of the impending potential, let's call it that, sale to Elon Musk. But they also stuck to the line on the proportion of bots and said, look, it's still less than 5%. Something, of course, that's crucial to this potential sale or non-sale because Elon Musk says, "Uh uh-uh, I don't agree. Of course, right? So Twitter is blaming this on Elon Musk. Elon Musk is blaming him pulling out on the bots and around, around it goes. But look, Julia, this is the second social media company back to back that has really disappointed Wall Street expectations. When it comes to Twitter, revenue came in at $1.18 billion for the most recent quarter. That was a decline of about 1% from the prior year. Uh, Earnings were a significant miss. And yes, they blamed it in part on the uncertainty and drama surrounding the Elon Musk deal, but they also blamed it on macro headwinds, which uh, certainly is valid, but has become sort of a buzzword these days, macro headwinds uh, impacting its advertising business. We should say that shares are down about 2%, so sort of a muted response pre-market, uh, and we'll see how they, they perform throughout the day. Uh, year to date, it has been Quite a bumpy ride. You can see uh, it was closer to about 68 bucks this time last year, but it has been uh, sort of on a decline since then. And then look at that pop. Well, Julia, we know what happened then. That's when sort of Elon Musk came into the picture. Once he pulled out, well, it started the free fall again. But Snapshare is also reporting yesterday after the bell also missing expectations. Revenue growth actually came in about 13% compared to uh, last year, the quarter last year, but also blamed larger macro headwinds. Uh, And it is a real concern for these companies that are reliant on advertising. But is it an indication, Snap at least, is it an indication of what is happening uh, in the broader ecosystem? Dan Ives of Wedbush says, not so fast. Take a listen. So he says that we view Snap as a paper airplane in a windstorm and not a phenomenal barometer for the pace of the digital ad slowdown. I should say, however, Julia, another sort of similarity between Snap and Twitter, they're both pulling back guidance. Uh, Twitter citing the impending litigation, but in the case of Snap saying that, look, the macro sort of environment is so difficult that it is uh, really difficult to predict what the next quarter will, will look like. But that's a major sort of red flag, Julia, about what's to come. We remember that uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of companies also pulled their guidance because uh, it was the pandemic and who was to say what that would look like. And so there is a lot of uncertainty in the market in terms of uh, what the next few months and perhaps even longer looks like. Yeah, ad spending. One of the things that gets cut in an economic slowdown. But I have to say, when I saw the um, Twitter results, I was relieved because the ad spending slowdown viewpoint from Snap made you think, actually, that the situation perhaps is far worse for some of the other big players. And Twitter sort of suggested, OK, it's softening, but it's nowhere near as bad as uh, what Snap's going through. Um, yeah. yeah. Interesting Enjoying, times to come. 
Yeah, we have to, absolutely. I and I'm I think next week talking. will also be. Well, and I think next week will also <laughs> be really interesting, right? Because we'll hear from Meta, we'll hear from Microsoft, and so we'll get a lot more clarity about well, how difficult is the ad spend environment right now? Bingo. I'm not saying anything else. Being told off. <laughs> Rahel, thank you. Happy Friday. Okay, more heat wave hell in China, the country now bracing for a further 10 days of rising temperatures across the country. Selena Wang joins us from Beijing. Wow, no end in sight, Selena. No, it's already sweltering here, but believe it or not, it is about to get worse with 19 cities issuing red alerts. That is the highest heat warning, meaning temperatures are expected to surpass 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And you've also got more than 200 cities issuing orange alerts. This is the next most severe warning. But weather authorities say that the hottest day of the year is going to be Saturday, which according to the traditional lunar calendar is called the day of great heat. Now, the past few weeks have been absolutely scorching. Temperatures have been persistently high since June. According to state media, by mid-July, this heat wave covered half the country, impacting more than 60% of the population. Last week, you had dozens of cities logging record highs, some reaching more than 110 degrees. Now, all of this is part of the global trend of more extreme weather driven by climate change. It is not just the heat hitting China, but also flooding. Flooding in recent months have displaced millions of people and destroyed vast fields of crops. All of that puts more pressure on an economy we've been constantly discussing about that is already battered by the COVID lockdowns. And that crop damage threatens to push up inflation. You're already seeing pork prices in China increase significantly because of the rising cost of feed. Now, this heat wave has also pushed up electricity demand to extreme levels as people crank up the air conditioning. Zhejiang province, for instance, this is a major export manufacturing hub. It urged 65 million residents there to save power and has rationed power supply for some of its businesses, Julia. Yeah, and very quickly, as you pointed out, China, of course, still battling with the zero COVID policy. How's the heat wave uh, impacting that? Well, Julia, the mass testing, the SNAP lockdowns, they are not stopping. At least 30 cities are now in full or partial lockdown. Any resident across the country, young, old and sick, they're required to wait in these long lines for regular COVID tests, even in the scorching weather. I mean, this is the kind of weather that's suffocating in a T-shirt and shorts. Now, imagine wearing a full head to toe hazmat suit outside all day. That is what COVID testers are going through. There have been growing reports of COVID workers collapsing on the job from heat stroke, videos of giant pools of sweat in their suits have gone viral on social media and some have gotten creative by hugging giant ice cubes and taping water bottles and ice snack packs to their backs. Anything they can do to relieve themselves from this heat, Julia. Wow. Selena Wang, thank you for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. While a violent mob attacked the U.S. Capitol for three hours, former President Donald Trump failed to act while watching it play out on TV. That was one of the revelations Thursday night during lawmakers' eight hearings, eighth hearing on the January 6th riot. They said that for 187 minutes, President or former President Trump refused to condemn the rioters or ask them to go home. He did not call law enforcement or national security. And one of the most damning pieces of evidence, even after the violence, Trump refused to say the election was over, as you hear in these outtakes from a speech Trump videotaped on Jan 7th. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, can't say that. 
I'm not going to. I already said you will pay. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. U.S. President Joe Biden isolating at the White House after testing positive for coronavirus on Thursday. Dr. Sather, a 79-year-old leader who has been double vaccinated and double boosted, is doing well and has mild symptoms. He's taking the COVID antiviral drug Paxlovid. Sri Lankan authorities have raided a large protest camp outside the presidential office in Colombo. At least 14 anti-government demonstrators were injured as soldiers and police officers drove them out. It comes a day after a new president came into power and called on security forces to maintain order. Okay, straight ahead on first move, Mattel earnings race ahead and the sky's not the limit. Toymakers now doing deals with the rocket firm SpaceX. And we're live in Istanbul as Ukraine prepares to sign a key green export deal. That's expected in around 15 minutes from now. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. And it seems parents are willing to pay higher prices for toys. Just look at the latest estimate beating earnings from Mattel, the makers of Barbie and Hot Wheels. Even amid rising costs and supply chain challenges, the number one toy company in the United States is confident sales will hold up. That echoes similar comments from rivals Hasbro. Mattel sales jumped by 20% in the second quarter, while later in the year we can look forward to a tie-up with the forthcoming Barbie movie starring Margot Robbie and a deal to make SpaceX toys, among many others. Elon Kreis is the CEO of Mattel and he joins us now. Great to have you with us. I think the message seems to be, and congrats on the quarter, uh, the economy around the world may be slowing, but Mattel isn't, and the growth phase continues. Yes, uh, Julia, these were very strong results for Mattel with our eighth consecutive quarter of top-line growth. Our profits grew significantly, with adjusted operating income up 82%, despite high inflation. And after a record first half, we expect continued growth in the second half and are planning for increase in consumer demand in the holiday season. So very happy with where we are and expect to win market share going forward. You know, it's quite funny when you uh, list your potential caveats and headwinds, um, foreign exchange, pricing pressures, the economic outlook, spending, the labor market. Um, I would have argued that maintaining those forecasts is, is pretty good and ambitious in this kind of environment. But some investors weren't happy and were saying, hang on a second, the growth that you're seeing is so strong in the first half of the year. Why aren't you even raising your forecasts? You can't please everyone, but just give us a sense of, um, of what you make of uh, perhaps some of those comments, because um, that's interesting to me in light of the broader macro challenges. There's many uncertainties here. That's right. And it's not that we're insulated from uh, these challenges, but we have been able to work through uh, two years of uh, supply chain issues, rising inflation, and still deliver these numbers. And we just reiterated our full year guidance for strong top line growth of 8 to 10 percent in constant currency and increased uh, profitability in spite of significant inflation and negative currency impact. So we continue to focus on executing our strategy. We expect a second half retail sales to be above the first half levels. We also expect the industry to grow for the full year and for Mattel to gain share. I mean, that's um, a phenomenal outlook. I think, in light of what we're seeing, how much ability does that give you to raise prices? 
you know, for the second half of the year in particular? Well, pricing is one of the options we consider in times of inflation. This is not unique to Mattel and not unique to the uh, toy industry. Uh, but when we raise prices, we always keep the consumer in mind. We're being very thoughtful and strategic and are committed uh, to maintaining the highest quality and best value for, uh, for the consumer. I heard on the call, and I think it was your CFO that said it, that you are seeing a degree of substitution away from some of the higher price things like the, the Barbie Dreamhouse, for an example. Can, can you just flesh that out a little bit for us? What exactly are you seeing? And do you expect to perhaps see some more of that, that sort of baked into the cake of the, the forecast that you've provided? Yeah, we are seeing some softness in the higher price items, mm. uh, which is not a surprise given the uh, inflationary pressure. Uh, but this is where having a broad portfolio with multiple uh, product and multiple categories, uh, you know, plays to our advantage in being able to offer a variety of product at a variety of prices and work through uh, these this, um, this, uh, this, uh, uh, slight changes in consumer behavior. But over time, we do expect the uh, normal consumption patterns and increase in sales during the holiday season to, to return to, uh, to normal levels. And one of the things that we've talked about in the past is your ruthless managing of, of some of the supply chain challenges and what helped you outperform, particularly in the, the first half of this year. Is some of that easing? Because I can see that you're building inventory. I just wonder whether actually for you that the bigger challenge is getting that wrong and not having enough supply to meet the demand that you're talking about expecting for the holiday period, because we've, we've had challenges with that now for the past couple of years. That's what you don't get wrong this year. That's right. The supply chain uh, is playing a key role in our success. All of our owned and operated factories are fully operational. Uh, we are seeing uh, that port congestion is improving, uh, although not back uh, to, to pre-pandemic levels. Our product is flowing uh, and we are working very closely with our retail partners to ensure the product is available uh, and on shelves to meet the consumer demand towards uh, the second half and the and the holiday season. I mean, the beauty of what you've done with the company now is it's not just about making toys. It's about utilizing uh, some of the older brands and the intellectual property and working out how best they fit in the sort of 21st century toys or entertainment sphere. Um, Barbie has been very busy. I know you've just wrapped this week, I believe, on the, the filming of the, the Barbie movie. But Barbie's also went into space in recent months as well, which I know was a was a collaboration with the International Space Station to promote women and girls in, in STEM and engineering. You've also inked a deal, I believe, with SpaceX too. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, the partnership with SpaceX is about a, a, uh, creating space exploration toys and collectibles under the Matchbox brand. Uh, the toys will come out next year. Uh, the collector uh, line will be available on Mattel Creation. This is really about uh, how we scale our portfolio. Uh, and it speaks to our innovation and creativity and thinking out of the box, uh, and also about bringing new partners into the toy aisle. Uh, so it is an exciting partnership. Uh, you will continue to see more of this uh, innovation um, and, uh, and creative ideas to, uh, to expand our business. And just to touch on Barbie, uh, uh, yes, the movie did wrap uh, formally <laughs> yesterday. We finished principal photography. And uh, it's shaping up to be uh, a real iconic cultural event. It will be a great one to look forward to.
We are huge fans of Margot Robbie on this show, so we look forward to it for sure. I will never be forgiven not asking if there's going to be an Elon Musk toy. Elon, can you can you give us a hint? Well, we don't comment on specific oh. uh, plans for toys, <laughs> but I can tell you we always look to delight and entertain uh, and continue to inspire uh, consumers mm. all over the world. Uh, and we do that uh, well across our categories and look forward to doing having more fun with our product. Yes, that wasn't a no, I note. <laughs> That's my familiar answer. Ian, great to have you with us. Thank you so much and congrats again. Thank you, great Julia. Quarter. The CEO Thank of you. Mattel there. Okay, coming up, unlocking Ukraine's grain. Can the deal be reached and will it work next? Smiles and cheers there at the New York Stock Exchange. Definitely a Friday feeling. U.S. stocks are up and running on the final trading day of the week and a profitable week so far for investors. That said, a tale of two markets today. The blue chips holding up fairly well. Trouble, though, in Techland due to sickly snap results. Certainly no snap back for snap. Down some 30% in early trade and weighing on other big ad-supported tech names, as we've discussed, like Meta and Alphabet. Snap warning of a difficult environment for ad spending as stressed consumers deal with rising inflation. As you can see, that picture now down some 32%, but no sign of a consumer slowdown at Amex. American Express shares are rallying 6 after a big earnings beat. The firm also raising its outlook for the year thanks to a 30% boost in card member spending. Fears of a softer economy has been weighing on markets for months, but Amex's CEO says today he sees no recession in sight. We'll get a better look at how the US economy is doing next week when we get the first read of second quarter growth numbers. The Fed also set for an oversized rate hike, a three-quarters of a percentage point hike is expected and we'll get more big tech results from the likes of Apple, Microsoft and Alphabet too. Okay, let's get to Istanbul Live now, where officials from Russia and Ukraine are expected to sign a deal to resume exports of Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea. The agreement was brokered by Turkey and the United Nations. You're looking at live pictures of that room there. So people are starting to gather. We will uh, take you there as soon as that happens. But for now, Nick Robertson joins us now from Kiev. Nick, it's a complicated agreement. Already it's not just one, it seems to be two. The Ukrainians will sign a deal with the United Nations and, and with Turkey overseeing it and and Russia will do a mirror agreement. It already feels tenuous. It does, um, and and rightly so. This is a massive diplomatic lift uh, engineered with the help of Turkey, but by the United Nations, um, because the countries, uh, Russia and Ukraine, are still at war. What the Russians are agreeing to do is, is sign up to an agreement with the UN, and what the Ukrainians are agreeing to do is to sign up to an agreement with the UN, and these agreements are, as you say, mirrors of each other, that will allow for controlled and agreed shipping channels. Now, they're not going to be demined. There are a lot of sea mines in these shipping channels, and it was agreed that that would take too long, three or four months. And the need to get this uh, wheat and other grains to the world markets is so pressing that the agreement is that Ukrainian pilots would go aboard vessels to guide them and navigate them through the areas of those sea mines. So that's, that's one 
area where there's where there's a risk uh, and there's a joint operation center in Istanbul that will monitor that the ships stay in their lanes. That's another risk. There's no um, hard ceasefire uh, around the port areas. That's another risk because fighting shelling could uh, break out. We know even the past couple of days, Russia has been firing huge missiles at Odessa, the port where some of this grain will, will set off from. So uh, the, the risks are there. And then, of course, there's a possibility of transgressions on the Ukrainians' mind. There will be the idea that Russian vessels coming in to go pick up uh, Russian uh, wheat and Russian fertilizers that they're going to, by this agreement, move out, that, that pot potentially the Ukrainians fear that, you know, Russians could um, put, you know, uh, uh, weapons or, or other equipment that's banned under sanctions and use that as a as a means to import it into Russia. So there's a real trust issue here. And th that, of course, is why the two aren't agreeing with each other. They're agreeing with a broker in the middle. And the real success is going to be if this can work then international shipping uh, companies will be able to get the insurance they need to bring the cargo vessels in to get the wheat. But of course, if any of it breaks down, that insurance is going to be harder to get. So you don't get the vessels in and the whole thing falls apart. Absolutely. It's whether the insurers feel that there's enough security guarantees in place in order to be able to provide some assurances to the to the freighters and to the sea crews trying to go in there. Um, huge challenges. Nick, the backdrop of this to notable comments from the UK intelligence forces today saying that Russia is about to, quote, run out of steam, that they'll find it difficult to supply manpower and materials over the next few weeks. And it could be an opportunity for the Ukrainians to strike back. What do you make of these comments? What we're hearing from the Ukrainians and President Zelensky uh, last night saying that he thinks that the Ukrainians can take back territory, has been having conversations or his military chiefs have been having conversations with, with U.S. partners about getting the right weapons into the right soldiers' hands. He says it will need a sort of an up-tempo, an energy pickup. But the assessment of how the Ukrainians are doing with these new weapon systems that they've got, the HIMARS weapon system, the, the more accurate uh, and, and long longer range weapons is that they've been able to pick off, according to U.S. assessments so far, over a hundred strategically important targets. And that includes ammunition stores. And that is what is stalling at the moment the Russian advance or, or part of it. One shouldn't overplay that. Um, if this is part of what the MI6 chief means, that, you, you know, Russia has gone as full steam as it can, and now it's meeting this new military impediment in its path, and it's now going to run out of steam, does that mean that Ukrainians can take back some territory? Potentially, but there's a lot more that has to come into play. You, there's a massive front lines here. Ukraine needs many more of these HIMAR systems to really be effective. And it's going to need to be able to, um, you know, mobilize and push troops forward in a way that it has found difficult to do so far, with a few exceptions, of course, when the Russians pulled out of the north of the country. Um, but they're under a lot of pressure under, under front lines and a lot of villages uh, and towns being shelled as Russia still tries, you know, to make those land games. Critical context. Nick, thank you. Nick Robertson in Keeper is there. We're back after this. Stay with CNN.
Welcome back to First Move. The travel pandemonium continues to plague flyers this summer. One of the world's most disrupted airports, London's Heathrow. In this report, our intrepid reporter Anna Stewart braved a flight to one of its most popular destinations. Take a look at how she fared. Long lines, delays and cancellations. Travel in Europe has never felt so chaotic. One of the best ways to really show you the issues is to take you for a trip. We are going to go through one of the worst disrupted airports in the world and to one of the busiest holiday destinations. We're going to Ibiza, Spain. And we were quickly confronted with challenge number one. We're too early and we're not the only ones. What's the problem? We can't check in. Once bag check-in opens, this is the queue. Now, my advice would normally be don't check in a bag this summer unless you really have to. But out of curiosity, we're going to check one in anyway. And actually, I'm going to put a GPS tracker in it so we can see where it gets to. Tracking the bag is a good idea, particularly through Heathrow. A shortage in baggage handlers has resulted in scenes like this. Mountains of lost luggage. Bye-bye suitcase, hope to see you in Ibiza. If the queue for check-in looked bad, look at this. I have never seen a queue like this for security. I'm honestly worried now that I'm going to miss my flight, despite the fact that I arrived three hours early. I wasn't allowed to check in a bag until two hours before the flight. But this queue is going all the way from security. It's snaking all the way around, and then it's going all the way back down the airport's entranceway to the far corner. Any flight within one hour. Oh, that's us. I'm fast-tracked through, it's getting too close to departure. So no time for a shop, a rush to the gate, only to find it's delayed. But a couple of gates down, there's a flight delayed by a lot more. 14 hours. These girls and many others slept here at the airport. My children is sleeping on the floor. Uh, he's uh, feel cold, my children, yeah. It's really bad. Me, yeah, I'm tired as well. This couple's flight woes started even earlier. My, my uh, flight started in Dublin two days ago and uh, my first flight got cancelled. And then I started my flight yesterday to London, the second one, and now this one got cancelled also. And now I'm here and I hope today I will leave the country. <laughs> Are you ever travelling again? Not to the UK. <laughs> I made it onto the plane. It was now delayed but that seems small fry compared to others. And amazingly, even my bag made it. Hey. Of course, it could all go wrong when I go back home. Maybe I should just stay here. Anna Stewart, CNN, Ibiza, Spain. <laughs> Lucky Anna Stewart. But of course, no cancellations and getting your luggage on time aren't the only efficiency gains required in travel. Better fuel efficiency is also key to the future of travel. And that's where our next guest comes in. UK-based aircraft company Hybrid Air Vehicles first unveiled its hybrid helium airship, the Airlander 10, back in 2016. A throwback to blimps of the past, you may call it. It uses helium and clever aerodynamics to lift it off the ground. And the company says in the future that aircraft could cut emissions 
by up to 90%. And now one of Europe's largest regional airlines, Air Nostrum, has ordered 10 airlanders scheduled to be delivered in 2026. Joining us now is Tom Grundy, CEO of Hybrid Air Vehicles. Tom, fantastic to have you on the show. I mean, the vision, I think, is to be the future of zero carbon aviation, and but that's going to involve uh, electric motors and hydrogen fuel, surely. But you offer the prospect of far more efficient flights today. Explain how the technology works. Absolutely, we do, Julia. Um, Airlander offers um, a really different way of of travelling. It offers that way of travelling at very, very low emissions. um, And it offers it quickly. So we're thinking a lot about what might happen in the next decade about decarbonising aviation. But the aircraft you can see in the picture behind me, that was flying in 2017. And even that standard of our aeroplane produced 75% less emissions uh, than any other aircraft doing the same job. And by the time Airlander goes into service with Air Nostrum, with those hybrid electric engines, it'll be a 90% CO2 reduction compared to any other way of taking that flight. You know, it's funny. We start to mention the word helium. You mention the word perhaps hydrogen fuel cells in the future too, mixed with the images. And if anyone knows the history, they start to get a little bit nervous. Is that a problem? Is it about education? Should we be concerned? Give me the safety specs, because I think we have to get over that hurdle first and foremost. Yeah, they shouldn't be concerned. I mean, if we think back to those uh, those things back then, uh, we're talking about the 1930s. Yes. Uh, I think if you think about any other way of traveling back then, uh, there were similar levels of risk um, uh, that people had to get over. And what we have now is 21st century technology, 21st century safety regulations. And Airlander is regulated and certified in exactly the same way as any other transport aircraft around the world today. So I'll certainly be getting on board with my family and my friends uh, with the confidence that we've gone through uh, all of the things that a modern process of design, build and certification can give us. Yeah, I'm like, where do I sign? It's very exciting. Um, Give us the stats then, speed, payload, altitude. Um, How do you expect these planes ultimately to be used? Okay, so Airlander operates really differently to anything else that we see in the sky today. Uh, So it's a really different journey. Uh, We just heard in the last segment that although aeroplanes are really, really fast, sometimes that process of getting onto the flight in the first place, getting off at the other end, getting your baggage together can actually put a lot more journey time in than we think. So with Airlander, we're creating direct connections. We don't have to be constrained to the airport. We can go more directly point to point on this aeroplane. The aircraft just needs flat space to take off and land on. So that could be grass, it could be sand, no big airport infrastructure. It can even be water, which has been really interesting for our airline customers. And of course, when you get on board, The boarding process is much more like getting on a ferry or getting in a railway carriage compared to what we go through at the airports to get on fast aeroplanes. And once we're on board, uh, the environment there is totally different. So every seat directly accessible to the aisle. So no squeezing into the middle seat there. Uh, It's quiet. It's spacious. We've got huge windows to look out of. Flies a little bit lower than other aeroplanes. And although people think, you know, it flies relatively slowly, it's flying at 130 kilometres an hour direct point to point. So direct connections, easy to get on and get off. And over short distances, you've got journeys that are every bit as quick as the regional jet, but with only one tenth of the carbon dioxide emissions. Yeah, I mean, it looks more like a, a sort of upper class lounge than the, the aircraft <laughs> uh, traditionally. Um, 
to ask though, because clearly you can see that there's not going to be as many passengers on, on that, certainly compared to a flight. What's the, the cost difference based on the cost of this, do you think, of, of flying in one of these if you wanted to do a traditional that's, journey? That's been really important for us. So um, actually, there's 100 seats on board Airlander for these mm-hmm. flights. So that's the same size as a regional jet that would transport you uh, from airport to airport. Uh, but the difference is a lot more space involved here. So the uh, the space is there for hundreds, hundreds of pa- 100 passengers to sit comfortably. Um, and it's been really important, as you can imagine, in our work with companies like Air Nostrum to demonstrate the cost effectiveness of those journeys as well. So although you've got that space as you would in a train carriage or as you would on, perhaps on a ferry to, to move around and enjoy the trip, it doesn't have to come at a premium. Um, and that's been really important and really one of the reasons why uh, the purchase of 10 of these uh, with Air Nostrum has been such a landmark deal for us. And just to be clear, what is the cost of one of these? Um, well, the overall cost of one Ballpark. of these is incorporating the cost of buying them uh, and the cost of operating them right. means that for your passengers, it's going to be equivalent to flying today. Wow. I shouldn't really make a comment, but I know what I'd rather do. Um, so you've had grant yes, funding exactly. from the EU. Yeah, <laughs> not saying anything else. And the UK, also from the US Department of Defence. Um, I was reading uh, on this as well. So everybody's sort of keeping tabs on this technology. Um, are they eyeing the Airlander 50? Because that's when we really start to scale this up and talk about perhaps freight movement as well. And more passengers. Yeah, that- yeah, that's a great point. So uh, we think of Airlander as having three big markets, passengers, which mm. we've talked about, passenger transport, uh, surveillance and looking after things on the ground. So maybe long endurance search and rescue, protecting people, protecting things on the ground and then freight. And um, Freight's a really big market and decarbonizing freight transport is a big deal. Uh, overcoming some of the bottlenecks that we have in our freight transport systems is really important for the, for the logistics world, as we're seeing all around us at the moment. And also providing services into underserved parts of the world, places where aircraft find it really hard to reach. So Airlander 50 is designed for that. It's a bigger aeroplane. We launched the requirements process for Airlander 50. It'll be the next design off our books. We're working with AECOM, big infrastructure services firm with high, big interest in logistics. Um, Infinity, who are wind turbine blade manufacturers, who've got the challenges of getting those wind turbine blades into hard to reach parts of the world. Um, and also transport networks uh, where there's not just passengers to move around, but freight. And the really exciting thing with Airlander 50 is we get to moving shipping containers by air. So connecting the air transport system directly to that world of shipping containers that, as we know, go on trains and boats and trucks at the moment, but can't get on the airplane. I was about to say, yeah, could have done with this over the last few years. Tom, keep working. We'll get you back and we'll continue the conversation. Thank you so much. Tom Grundy Thank there, you. the CEO of Hybrid Air Vehicles. Great to chat, sir. Thank you. Stay with CNN. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. As temperatures soar across the world, attention is turning to heat-related illnesses, especially for those working outdoors. In Dubai, one of the hottest places on Earth, a new technology is being tested that could help save lives. Claire Sebastian has all the details. It's another day's work at this aluminium smelter in Dubai. Shirts, boots, helmet. It's not your regular office job. 
Here, temperatures can reach up to 58 degrees Celsius, a challenging and potentially dangerous environment. Gulf is one of the more warmer parts of the world. Uh, and in addition to that, the equipment and the operation itself generates heat. A new technology is here to help prevent overheating. Emirates Global Aluminium says that 50 volunteers are trialling a device that aims to detect symptoms before they even realise it. That it can measure and calculate if you are entering in any kind of a heat stress situation. So this is Developed by American company Kenzen, this tech can actually monitor critical health indicators like body temperature, heart rate and sweat output. The device is a wearable device that's worn on the upper arm. It is used to help predict and prevent adverse health events on site. On the back side, uh, you actually have your heart rate sensor, skin temperature, and, um, and looks at sweat as well. They'll know through vibration first that their core temperature has raised uh, to a, a level where they need to stop working. Um, they can also see those values on an app on their phone. The dashboard you're seeing on the screen is a dashboard that is designed for safety managers to be able to monitor their team and to see if anybody is at risk. You can see the team member's name, you can uh, see if they're at risk or not. That allows you to really understand who to triage, who to help. Whilst the device functions by alerting its users of symptoms, having the right equipment and knowledge is still key to actually remediating the impacts of heat. Technology on its own is never going to be enough. You have to have the infrastructure and you have to have the facilities in which it can operate successfully. In one of the hottest climates on Earth, learning how to deal with high temperatures goes far beyond the heat of the moment. So making sure the right technology is in place now could have an impact on workers' safety in the years ahead. Claire Sebastian, CNN. And we're still, of course, waiting on that major announcement from Istanbul. The United Nations and Turkey have brokered a deal to get grain exports out of Ukraine. We expect to see that at any moment. That's the room. And you can see people gathering and uh, talking there. We will bring that to you the moment it happens. And finally, on First Move, Game of Thrones fans, get ready. And I heard the sound of thundering arms, splintering shields and ringing swords. And I placed my hand upon the Iron Throne. And all the dragons roared as one. Set 200 years before the original show, it will feature plenty of drama, plenty of dynasties, and of course, dragons. It all starts next month on HBO Max, which shares a parent company with CNN. The King has an heir. That's it for the If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll be back in a couple of hours' time with one more. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.